We all know it's hard enough to build a business, to, to start something from scratch and to grow that business. Then you add the, uh, the challenges uh, of the pandemic onto that. And, uh, and it's a miracle that any of us are still standing. Today, on today's episode, I want to introduce you to a guy named Tom Foley. He did just that. He came from another industry altogether, came in and, uh, and built, started, launched, grew a business, a restaurant business, not just one, but two different concepts. And they continue to grow. His story is great. He's got a ton of great insights to uh, to share please don't go anywhere there's an old saying goes something like this you'll only find three kinds of people in the world those who see those who will never see and those who can see when shown this is restaurant strategy a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week we toggle back and forth between a monologue style format and an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take complicated concepts both on the marketing and operations side and make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, despite easing restrictions, all of us are still strapped into the roller coaster ride of fluctuating food prices. That, combined with continuing staffing challenges, makes it more important than ever to control your costs just to remain profitable. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food and labor costs in real time so that you can make informed decisions in the moment rather than weeks after the period ends. By automating your invoice processing and totally digitizing your back office, Margin Edge saves your team hours on paperwork and gives you instant insights to manage your prime costs. Take control of your costs with real-time data. Best of all, listeners of the show get to try Margin Edge free for 30 days. Free for 30 days. That's no contract, no setup fee, free and unlimited training and support. Learn more at marginedge.com chip. As always, that link is in the show notes. Now, before we get into today's topic, I just want to take a quick moment to let you know about my group coaching program. It's called Restaurant Accelerator. This is a year-long mastermind program. It's two hours every single week for an entire year. I've got two groups going already. I work with operators all over the country. I bring them together, and we work through problems in a systematic fashion. I say it's not about throwing Hail Mary touchdown passes, but by uh, getting first downs, by moving the chains, fixing problems little by little by little by little so that after a month, after three months, after six months, you will have a totally different restaurant than when you started. We work on systems and goals, proper goal setting, and how to set the systems into place to allow your team to succeed below you, how to, how to empower them and motivate them to do what you need them to do. The program works. We only open up the doors twice a year, every January and every July. And guess what? July is coming. So all month long, all June, I'm, I'm holding calls, right? So I'm urging you to set up a strategy session. This is like a 45-minute call. It's half coaching, half discovery, where we just get to learn more about each other. I get to hear more about your restaurant, the things you're dealing with, you get to hear more about me, the way that I operate, the, 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 way that, um, the way that I coach with my clients, and we just see if it's a good fit. 
even if even if it's not a good fit and you don't want to move forward, at least I will have gotten to know you a little bit better. You will have gotten to know me a little bit better. And again, it's a free 45-minute call. The best way to move forward with that is to visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Set up a call. Find a time on my calendar and let's set up a time to get on the phone together and let's just talk. Let's talk about the industry. Let's talk about your restaurant. Let's talk about what's going right and what's going wrong. And by the end of that call, we'll see if there's a way that you might be uh, that you might be able to uh, benefit from the program. Again, it's called Restaurant Accelerator Group Coaching Program. It's a mastermind where we meet two hours every single week for an entire year. You're going to be surrounded by all kinds of incredible uh, chefs, operators, owners, managers, people who are actively trying to take their business to the next level. I promise you will be in good company. Again, to sign up for a call, right, to schedule a call with me, visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. So my guest on today's show is Tom Foley. He's the co-founder of T2D Concepts. Uh, they got a couple of different brands. He partners with Chef Tiffany Derry. We're going to get into a whole lot about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why that matters. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. So I was really interested in, you know, I'm introduced to a lot of people, a lot of people who have restaurants, who open restaurants, who are really passionate about restaurants. But there was something about what you guys are doing, uh, about your background, about uh, Chef Derry's background, and, and sort of um, all the things I was reading about you. you. You've talked a lot about how driving social change is important, and uh, I think we can all agree it is. But I want to, over the course of this conversation, get into why that is so uh, important to you and and really how you're um, how you're following through on that. But I want to go back because I want to give the listeners a little bit of context. Talk to me a little bit about your background and how you came to the restaurant industry. Yeah, a circuitous path for sure. Uh, I, I love the question because the, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of, of restaurants is, is when I was in 11th grade and promoted to crew chief at McDonald's uh, and truly learned process in a way that at 16 and 17, I didn't recognize. Unfortunately for my two kids, they recognize it because the process at McDonald's of ensuring when you open, it is all coordinated and organized. And when you close, it's even more coordinated and organized. You know, we clean our kitchen every night as if we're cleaning the kitchen at McDonald's. And, and my children are just like, aren't we gonna be using the kitchen the next day? I said, you know, I said that at 16 and, and learned the lesson. Uh, but ultimately, went to law school, practiced law in New York City, handling litigation and mergers and acquisitions, and particularly working with small entrepreneurs and seeing, and I think you'll certainly uh, recognize this from your business skills and operational skills, seeing what those small business owners truly lacked with a focus on the legal background. So uh, always thought about Ideally, having my own law firm in a coffee shop, right? You come in, have some cappuccino, some espresso. We talk about the law. You smile when you leave. You're not feeling pained about going to the lawyer. So I, always I love it. Gravitated to that that hospitality side. Uh, so then just started learning more about the the back end, right? The, I'll call it the back office. All of the legal structuring, franchise or franchisee issues, operational issues from a hospitality perspective, and that just sparked my interest. 
So what about that then? Because this is something that um, if we haven't, uh, if we still have any listeners left, <laughs> I would urge them to still stay because this is the thing oftentimes uh, that, um, that gives them hives, that they run away from. And oftentimes operators, especially small, mid-sized independents uh, like this audience is, they go, that's all the stuff I don't want to, uh, I don't want to deal with. Um, I bury my head in the sand and I, and I think a lot of people are certainly guilty of that. I've been guilty of that in you know different areas and I've worked with plenty of people who are guilty of that. So talk to me a little bit about that. You talked about, you know, systems and goals and you know, how you, uh, you know, give a framework for everything and understanding by working with entrepreneurs. Talk to me about some of the, what exactly what were you seeing, you know, the, the flaws, where, where were things falling through? What were they not looking at in the right way? And how did you think you could help there? You said the key phrase, they bury their head in the sand. And it's a fear of the unknown. Uh, people gravitate to what they know. That gives them a sense of reward. They've accomplished something that day. When you're talking about legal issues, there's a black hole, there's an unknown. It's easier, at least for that day, not to address it. The yeah. problem is, it's always that day, right? Well, not today. I'll do it tomorrow. And we've heard tomorrow never comes. And practicing law, you know, the, the clients would come to you too late in the day. Uh, and this is, uh, pardon the, the, the visual reality of, of this analogy. My brother-in-law is a physician. And when he was doing his residency, he talked about a gentleman that came in that had a tumor that he let grow unreasonably. And as it worked out, it was harmless, but had he addressed it three years earlier, it wouldn't have had the negative impact on him. Right. But every day he woke up and he looked in the mirror and he said, not today. And it never goes away. It only gets bigger. So from my perspective, it was demystifying the legal components. It, you know, attorneys like to use big words. It keeps us, it keeps us protected, right? You don't look at the big words. We know you don't know them. So you need me to yeah. solve it. At the end of the day, how can we just make that a streamlined, easy process so that you don't run from it? And then the second component, it, and you've, I'm sure heard this, right? It's, it's not what you don't know. It's what you don't know you don't know. Yeah. So let me as the attorney help you identify those issues that we have to get somebody else to help with this, but at least we know we've got to get this addressed. Okay. So I love it. All that makes sense. I find that um, generosity uh, is one of the things that I um, that I'm really attracted to. That I I gravitate to when we come with you know when we look at having guests here. You've you've got that in spades. But talk to me because we still haven't jumped the fence yet. Because so far you're you know you're a lawyer. You're working with entrepreneurs. You're helping on that end. But you had to jump a fence to get over onto the operator side to actually owning a restaurant. Talk to me about how that came about. Yeah, and, and you introduced us with T2D concepts. So it's two T's, Tiffany first, Tom, and dining concepts. It's, you know, I say teasingly, it's all Tiffany's fault. Uh, you know, I met Tiffany in 2016, and she was introduced to me because she was looking at opening a fine dining restaurant, had an investor that she was interested in working with, wanted to make sure that it was structured properly, that her voice in, in a, a legal context, her vote was heard and that she was able to truly be an owner operator. And when we met, and I don't, don't ask me why, somehow we met at my house and 
if you've all had the opportunity to see Tiffany on TV, she's been on Top Chef and All Star Chef and uh, Bar Rescue and some of these these other shows. She's got the same personality on TV as she does in person, just engaging. And we wound up talking for hours. And it led to, after she met my wife and made sure I, I was uh, getting the support of my wife, she said, do you ever think about partnering? And that was really, that was the, that was the jump, right? That was going from the legal side. All right, now I'm, I'm all in on an operator's side. So she came to you to say, hey, look, look this stuff over, make sure it's, you know, I'm being taken care of. But that project never went forward over the course of that conversation. It was like, actually, no, that's not who I want to be partnering with. The, we gel better. I mean, am I painting that in the in, in a fair light? Yeah. And, you know, again, you, you said this. Hopefully there are still listeners that are that are engaged once they hear attorney. Uh, and I didn't share us from New York, which I know you are as well. Like you hear New York attorney, like I'm attuned to the next next part. Yeah. Skip. But <laughs> if, if they're still with us. Those restaurant operators, you know, when you go into a restaurant and you, and you simplify it, if you're looking at doing a restaurant deal and you're looking at building out a restaurant space and you're the chef operator and you have an investor, how do you structure that? How do you understand from a profit return perspective when you as the chef owner operator are going to realize any profit? And you know this from being in the restaurant business uh, for 20 years and all your expertise that you're providing, you know it better than I do. If, if you're going to do a $2 million build out and you're, let's say you're a $4 million annual revenue generator restaurant, which you know, that's yep. a high performing restaurant. Yeah. And you know, if you're dropping 20% to the bottom line, you're also firing on all cylinders, right? Yep. So you, you take the math and you say, okay, so you, you do a $2 million build out. You owe somebody $2 million. You do $4 million a year, one-fifth goes to the bottom line, right? So even if I give you a million dollars, right, 25%, let's just say 800000 it takes you two and a half years with no interest being paid against that $2 million to even be on the positive side from your startup costs. Mm -hmm. So you say to a chef operator, you'll be working minimum three years before your percentage interest means anything. And then what is the investor structuring? How much are they asking for? What's the prioritization, what they call preferred returns? What's the priority return? How is all that being situated and structured? At the end of the day, like, you're just a highly paid, if, if highly paid employee, right? You've got a title of owner, but you don't really own anything at the end of the day from a profit perspective. So yep. that, you know, not that that deal was structured that way necessarily, but when you start digging into it, those yeah. are the questions that you have to ask, and that deal just wasn't right. Uh, yep. So then we said, okay, let's let's figure out how we can do this ultimately, right? Let's figure out how we can do this a little bit differently. Yep. So that was in 2016, and I, I do want to bring some food into this so that we don't lose everybody. Talk to me about uh, so you guys now have two concepts, and, and we'll go back and we'll take their time as to you know how they rolled out. But talk to me about you guys met in 2016. Talk to me about how you went to launch that first concept what was that and and how tell me how that grew yeah, yeah great question and, and now it's time to get people hungry because we've got the best duck fat fried chicken that you will uh have across the u.s hands down and i i'm i'm willing to go head to head with anybody that's that's open for the challenge uh we on paper we started with a fine dining concept uh with the idea of roots southern kitchen which would really highlight Tiffany's strengths growing up in Beaumont, Texas, and having a Louisiana flair of Southern cooking, 
any idea that Southern cooking is really the only American cuisine, right? It was, it was influenced by all parts of the globe from Africa to South America to India, but ultimately it is a, a, an American-based food. How do we introduce it leveraging Tiffany's strengths in a unique way? You know, finding that right full-service restaurant is, is tough. So although our paper schedule had that opening first, we wound up opening our fast casual concept, Roots Chicken Shack, where we have duck fat fried chicken tenders, chicken Caesar salad, some duck fat French fries, um, all homemade potato buns, homemade sauces. Excellent. We opened that in 2017 in a food hall uh, just north of Dallas, Texas, in Plano, Texas. Uh, in uh, knock on wood, it opened and, and was well received. And then we, we grew our second concept in partnership with HEB, the big grocery store that's uh, mm-hmm. uh, commanding you know, the South, South region. And we opened up in one of their grocery stores as they looked to convert to, it to a food hall as well. So talk to me about that because a lot of operators struggle with this, right? We, we get tunnel vision. We know what we're going to do. We're going to do this fine dining concept, and they sort of can't see other opportunities as they come. You made it sound so easy. Was it really that easy, or how did you allow yourself to see other opportunities while you were still pursuing this this main dream, the the main focus that you had had from the beginning? The the comment that is often shared that you'll hear is, in, in business, sometimes the best answer is no. And when you're focused on trying to hit a target, you have to be able to say no along the lines because you may get to that target, but it's hollow. So from our perspective, we would analyze every one of those full service restaurant ideas and you've got build out costs that are significant, never mind the the rental costs and otherwise. It just didn't it didn't pencil out. So we really focused less on the pots and pans, and we did more on the pen and paper, making sure that this this works. Simple concepts, you know this, it's a restaurant goes out of business, a new one comes in, it goes out of business, a new one comes in, it goes out of business. You come in and you say, well, I can do it better. Mm-hmm. It, it may not be the food, right? It, it may be the fact that you've got to make it a U-turn. It really is. Right, you've got to make a U-turn to get into that parking lot and the parking is never available and the person just drives to the next location because it's inconvenient. So, you know, you start looking at all of those components and you say, well, my rent is cheap here, but, uh, you know, so I'm going to go in that direction. And and those are the areas that you have to be concerned with. So all of those pieces, right, they just line up for that perfect jigsaw puzzle. You have to be patient. So the other opportunities come and we listen. This opportunity at the food hall was one where it allowed us to test our concept. We have a 329 square foot kitchen. So you know, just from an operator's perspective, so FF&E, fixtures, furnishings, and equipment, it can only cost so much when you only have 329 square feet. I teasingly say we've got controlled labor because there's only so many people you can fit into 329 yeah. square feet. And it said, okay, let's, let's head in this direction. The key for me was I'm working on paper, right? I, the, the equation has to add up. So I added up and I go, look at that. The equation worked. You're hitting on the key point, which is, in this case, the operator in the kitchen, Tiffany, has to, has to be flexible enough and say, hey, you know what? A chef at a fast casual restaurant is not what I have in mind. Like, I'm a, a culinary genius. Tiffany doesn't say that, right? But I'm a culinary <laughs> genius. I need to show up and show out. 
but I'll hold off on that. Right. Yep. The ego has to be set aside. The, the vision has to understand that it's going to come over time and saying no along the way is key. So I had the easy part, right? Cause one plus one has to equal two on, on my side, having the chef operator that says, I get it. I'll, I'll execute against that is key. So then talk to me because I, I totally agree. And I, I find that people, people build a pro forma to tell people what they want to hear or tell themselves what they want to hear rather than actually, you know, doing the logistics, you know, I, I always say it, it's the back of the napkin. It either works or it doesn't. And, uh, and, and like you said, like you, you got to build a profit margin. Otherwise you're going to be, you know, you're going to be working forever to pay off that initial capitalization. Um, and there's, there's going to be very little chance of you pulling yourself out at any point down the line. And that's true for, you know, an owner operator who's going to, you know, be managing the front or back of the house the whole time. So talk to me about when you did find the right, so you open Roots Chicken Shack, you're in a food hall, you expand to another one, you find finally the space that can house sort of the fine dining concept, Roots Southern Table. Talk to me about that. I mean, it seems like you said no a lot before you said yes. So what was it about that that, that finally got you to say yes? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, we, and again, paper and execution always don't match. We had signed the lease for Roots Southern Table in March of 2019, prior to the second Roots Chicken Shack opening. So in our mind, we've got Roots Chicken Shack, and we're going to open our next location, full service Roots Southern Table. We wound up choosing Farmer's Branch, Texas, which is just a little bit north of Dallas, actually between Plano, where we have Roots Chicken Shack and Dallas. And you hit on a key point. Why that location? It was a new development with a municipality, in this case, the city of Farmers Branch, it was very intentional about the design. They required that the developer of this site pull the retail component out from underneath a mixed-use building and create a, a, an area, a dining destination, to really encourage guests to visit. Not only were they smart from a planning perspective, they were politely putting their money where their mouth was. They said, we will extend a five-year grant to you, forgivable over five years, if you stay in business for each of those years, to help you open your business. Next was all of the typical things you look at, ingress, egress, location. We knew what our demographic was. We knew where we would pull from. We wanted to, we're a quarter of a mile from a major highway in Dallas. So it's, it's I say, 20 minutes from everybody, so mutually inconvenient. So there's... If the food is good enough, you'll drive that distance. Yeah. Uh, but the key to your answer was a landlord and a municipality that were truly partners in the process, right? It, it takes, I'm going to say three legs of the stool in this case, it takes all three to commit to that business being successful. And we had that support. So, I mean, the lesson here as I'm listening to it for the listeners here is don't be afraid to say no. And in fact, look for look for opportunities to say no. You really gotta be talked into it. I, I think about how, how many times I've consulted on new projects, and a lot of times I'm brought in for from you know by people who don't really know how to do this, who've never done, opened a place, and I've opened a ton of places. Uh, they say, I really wanna open my place, and I say, okay, it's my job to sit down with you for the next 45 minutes and talk you out of it. If you still wanna do it at the end of that, that's fine, we can set up another meeting, but for another hour and a half, I'm gonna try and talk you out of it. I'm gonna talk you out of it every step in the way because it's not easy, it's not fun, it's way harder than you imagine. 
And when we put together all the documents, all the pro formas and everything, I spent all my time just punching, just punching holes in it. Can't work on its best. It's got to work. Again, you got to be conservative. Twenty, you know, what if you did twenty percent less business and you, you know you had twenty percent more expenses? Does it still work? Can you can you still break even? Um, so I think the lesson here is to be patient and really, really try to punch as many holes in it as you can, and the real one will sort of rise to the top. Yeah, and you're hitting key points of of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs. And we've done a lot around the importance of entrepreneurship curriculum. And in, in one of the conversations we had uh, where a fifth grade uh, class was taking entrepreneurship, we asked the definition and a fifth grader raised her hand and she said, an entrepreneur is someone who gets things done. And I said, you know what? There's no better definition than that. The problem is sometimes the entrepreneur will embrace that to a fault. And they'll listen to you and they'll say, but, but, but. And I always say, if you have more than one but against that pro forma, you're going to run into obstacles that will put you out of business. And let's go to the statistics. Why do all these businesses in in the hospitality space go out of business? The decisions you're making right now are the reasons why. Right. And, And I know that's painful to hear. I know. You know, your food is good. And, and you'll ask the question. I, I love this question. So who's going to buy your food, right? If you ask me the question, anybody that loves fried chicken, well, that's the worst answer you can give, right? To your point, I mean, I know you've got all the skills on the marketing side and otherwise. So you say, if I give you a marketing dollar, how do you spend that? Who who are you spending that $1 to target? Is, yep. it, is it anybody that likes fried chicken? Then you might as well throw your money out the window, right? And well, yep. It, it, don't worry, we'll we'll get some press. We'll get this. We'll get that. That only carries you so far. We just had a, a story in in Dallas, a, a, a restaurant that opened up, James Beard Foundation nominated and hitting hitting all the buzz words out of business. Right? It's it's yep. the operational end. Ask before you go in. I love asking this question when you're when you're talking to a new operator. So there's your menu. Which one is your highest grossing profit margin? And they'll look at you and they go, I don't know. Right, and I don't want to talk to you anymore. Right, like, <laughs> come back because it's a business, right? It's it's true. I spend I spend a great deal of time, and I do that. I said I, I want you to know what's the most popular and what's the most profitable. You got to know your product mix, and you got to know your your menu matrix, right? The the profitability. I said when people come in, and you know, you start talking in business terms. They said, listen, there's an opportunity cost to what you're doing. Every time somebody buys this instead of that, you're taking money off the table. You lose money. Because this one is really profitable. So I always tell people, I said, you know, shrink your menu. Take three items off here. Take three items off here. Take three items. They said, no, 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 but I love those. But I love those. I said, but those aren't making you money. I ran the numbers. We're looking at it. You're telling me you're costing. You're telling me where all your waste and spoilage is. You're telling me what's really hard to hit your numbers. And I'm looking at your product mix. You tell me You tell me what they're ordering. They want to order this. We're going to raise the price on that. We're going to get rid of these two or three things. We want to create a menu where we make a reliable, consistent number every single time. So somebody can walk in. We say, I know I'm making $55 off that person because I've engineered the menu to pretty much be within that, right? So we don't get that that huge swing. And uh, you're absolutely right. you got to know your numbers. And I'm, and I'm amazed. And I know you, you, operators have so many different things different things to, to have to worry about. But you got to know where your bread is buttered. You know, what are the things that... Um, 
that really make you uh, that make you succeed. It's it's so true, and and what you're talking about. But I love that item. I will say that, and I say this in a whisper. I don't really eat fried food, <laughs> and all we do is serve fried food. And if we made a restaurant out of what I liked, we go out of business. It's not yeah. about what I like. It's about what my consumer wants. And that's the, as you know, the human-centered design thinking. That's the guest-centric design thinking. What does my yeah. guest want? And let me serve what the guest wants, not what I think the guest wants or what I like myself. At the end of the day, those are recipes for going out of business. So you're, yep. I, I love what you're sharing with, with the folks. People have to hire you before they open a business, no doubt. I mean, we need that Today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern team management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. Effective team management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially as restaurants start to open back up and now start to expand their teams. Trusted by more than half a million restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to simplify scheduling, to easily manage time and attendance, to communicate with your team, and to retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll systems you already use, turning your team into a competitive advantage for your business. Right now, Restaurant Strategy podcast listeners can get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash restaurant strategy to get three months of industry-leading team management software for free. It's, uh, you know, listen, I've been, I've been kept very busy these last, you know, uh, these last many years. Um, talk to me about Ruth's Southern Table, because you opened it in 2020, and obviously 2020 was a pretty climactic year for this industry. Talk to me about, so we talked about, you know, making sure it worked on paper, and then the reality of 2020, man, nothing worked. Nobody had that paper built. So talk to me about that experience of getting it all right, getting it the way you wanted to, opening the doors, and then the pandemic hits. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you guys navigated. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll talk about Chicken Shack and Southern Table. I'll touch Southern Table first. We uh, entered into the lease, I think I mentioned, in 2019, and uh, started, I told you I'm an attorney by background, so you know who negotiated the lease. Uh, the clause that nobody heard about prior to COVID, uh, force majeure was something that we paid attention to. Uh, so we were able to build in some favorable terms uh, in our lease, and we had a very cooperative landlord as well, which makes the process even that much more streamlined. We were yep. able to hold off construction for a year. So we were gonna start swinging a hammer in March of 2020, uh, and we all know what happened. Uh, we delayed until November of 2020 and then opened in June of 21. What that did is allowed us to design the restaurant, understanding the shift in guest preferences, mm -hmm. the importance of uh, creating a safe environment. So from air oxidizers that drive down coronavirus staff, MRSA by greater than 90% inside our restaurant, creating open air dining, which is uh, something that is obviously pretty pretty uh, available in the Dallas region. All of that came into play um, 
the uh, you know non-touch guest interaction. So I always equate it to the European experience at full-service restaurants. We went all in that direction. Uh, mm -hmm. So that helped. The challenge was with Chicken Shack. Right? That's when we were fully operating uh, in we have COVID hit. Uh, a few things. Again, I, I don't want to lean on the, the legal side, but understanding the CARES Act and how to navigate that and making sure that you had resources to help you uh, understand where your benefits were and strengths were and opportunities. That helped. Uh, the yeah. second, again, one of our core values is empathy. And in this case, what does the guest want? And then change the way you do business to match what the guest wants. You know the guest isn't coming in to your location and picking up your food yeah. anymore. So how do, you, how do you change that? We went from creating the duck fat fried sandwiches and chicken and tenders, and we created family meals. And yeah. we did curbside pickup with family meals for you know two, four, or six. They would pick it up. Texas uh, reduced a lot of its uh, alcohol beverage restrictions so that you can have alcohol yeah. to go at that point. So the municipality and the state were working favorably. We changed our model. Uh, and we wound up creating you know what the guests wanted to ensure that we, and at least at that point, our goal was to keep every employee and proud to say we did, uh, aside from those that maybe decided they wanted to do something different. Uh, we were able to retain all our employees by changing how we delivered to the guests. So I love that because you talked about pivoting without using the dreaded pivot word. And I agree with you. You, you put it so succinctly in a way that, um, that I've spoken a lot about, which is that, again, you put the guest first and you say, hey, they used to need this. That's why they came to us. And they no longer need this. They need that. So how can we provide them with that? Um, we talked about, you know, everybody talks about the pivot, the pivot. It's like, no, no, no. It's just about being in business. It's just about being sensitive. Now, it's about being nimble and sure, you know, there, there were companies that, that were able to do that and that weren't uh, able to do that. Um, but I, it's one of those things that I hope we take with us. It's not like a, well, I pivoted for the pandemic and I was able to make it through because the world will continue to change. Not that uh, I hope we don't have anything as climactic as this, but, um, but again, being able to be sensitive and look at your people and say, Hey, what do my people need? How am I uniquely qualified to provide them with what, with what we need um, or with what they need. So, and that was for both locations. You sort of shifted it and, and kept things going at, at both spots. We did. We did. And, and you hit again, the nail on the head with nimbleness and, and flexibility. What we talk about internally in our team and then even share externally is if I asked you, uh, pick the big box retailer you go to, uh, whether it's a grocery store, whether it's a Target, a Walmart, if you went into that store and every time you went in, all the products were identical, nothing moved, nothing changed, and you went shopping at that store, eventually you're going to shop elsewhere because that static delivery is no longer engaging to you. You want to see some shifts. Yeah, you want to see your, your staples. You know, where's, where's my milk? Where, where's my cereal? But what's, yep. what's different? What, what's new? What's What's the next thing? And we find that, particularly in the restaurant business, we don't do that, right? We, we have a model, it works, we don't change it. Well, every day, in my opinion, that you're not thinking flexibly and changing your model is the day you're closer to being out of business. So whether yeah. it's the pandemic or otherwise, as right now we're thinking, and you wouldn't be surprised with all of the trends, but creating plant-based chicken options. So 
we have to be thinking about that. Our model is working perfectly, knock on wood. But if we don't change in a year from now, it's not going to be quite as perfect. So the idea of always having that ability to change it, and that's a culture. So everyone on our team knows that, hears that, thinks that. Another core value we have is entrepreneurial spirit. What can we do differently, um, more effectively, more streamlined? So we just brought that model. And then, you know, the, the, the constriction. So you're always going to be looking at, as you know, you've got revenue and costs. So how do I maintain as much revenue opportunity? And then how do I reduce my costs? That's what we did on our team. And, you know, going back to what you were talking about with the, the, the idea of the pivot, what we do is we huddle amongst our team and we say, what are our assets? What are our skills? And then how do we reposition those assets and skills to deliver what the guest wants? How do we... Yeah. Even if it was a skill we weren't utilizing, let's bring that in and deliver that to the guests. So all of that together is kind of the ingredients that, that helped us. It's so true. One of the, one of the things I do, so I, I do a lot of speaking um, all, all, over the, all over the country. And uh, I always talk about this when I speak. It's the same thing I talk about with my uh, coaching clients. I say, hey, listen, for the next 45 minutes, you're not a restaurant owner. You're a business owner. Because when you say, I'm a restaurant owner, you think about the restaurant you own, all the other restaurants you owned, all the restaurant you worked in, and all the restaurants you've ever dined at. We know, we think about how a restaurant operates, and we get it in our brain and say, this is how a restaurant operates, this is how a restaurant has to operate. Meanwhile, if we think of ourselves like a business owner, we look for opportunities, right? And we look at our audience and say, hey, who needs something that I'm uniquely qualified to provide? And, and how can I do that? I mean, it's, I work a lot with brands about diversifying their revenue streams. You've got all these incredibly capable people, passionate, driven, you know, people who can, who can do things. And what's to say that the only way you serve them is when they come in, order something off your menu, and you give them what they order. You know, they haven't even thought of the fact that you could put together a CPG line, that there's a bake at home, that there are cooking classes, that there's, uh, that there's a consulting service you run, right? You, you've run a successful business. What's to say they can't hire you and Tiffany to, to go consult? For, like, there, there are skills that you guys have that are, that are marketable, that provide value. And I say this all the time to, to, to restaurant owners. I say, you're not a restaurant owner. You're a business owner. Look at all of the resources and all the assets at your disposal and do what a business would do, right? They, they would exploit the property. Right, I always think about. I live here in New York, and uh, I always think about the, the the theater world. That was my other world. I came from, and uh, theater producers use this all the time. They option a property, right? You option a, a a musical, a play, and it's called "How can we exploit the property?" Meaning, what are all the different ways we can milk this? Right, we're going to put it on Broadway. We're going to do a national tour. We're going to send it to London. We're going to uh, we're going to make a movie out of it. We're going to get the publishing rights. We're going to put merchandise. We're going to on and on and on. How can you milk that? And it's the same thing uh, with your quote unquote restaurant, your business. What are all the different ways you can you can milk that entity? Uh, again, I, I I may ask to hire you at the end of this. So so stop <laughs> with all of the drops of, of nuggets, but it, it, the, the challenge I would issue to every restaurant owner is to remove that subjectivity and truly challenge yourself to do that. And I, I, I have to call back stories in my mind. So I, practicing law, we represented a lot of people buying a first time house and you would fall in love with that house or renting an apartment. You fall in love with that. There's no other place. Just like we really need this. And you would call me and you would 
have all the subjectivity and not that I was being callous, right? I'm looking at paper. I'd say, I don't care where you live. Like you're just like, I don't understand the realtor that is selling you and gets a commission based on if you close on this. I don't care. Right. And I, I don't, I, that's the New Yorker, right? Where it's, it's, I'm just yeah. like, I, 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 I care as a person, but I, this is just paper to me. It, it's an address. I don't care if it has doors or windows. You want to buy it, we'll make it work. Remove the subjectivity and take that step aside from it, right? And even when I was buying a house, I had to remind myself of that, right? Because I fell in love with that property. And then you were doing things that somebody would tell you, yeah, you shouldn't shouldn't agree to that, right? (laughs) You, you You should walk away or you should do something different. It's that check. So then talk to me, I mean, so either you you surround yourself with people who can keep you in check. Um, otherwise, it sounds like a muscle that you learn to flex. How do, how do you get good, or how do the listeners here get good at, at doing that? There's, there's two answers to, to that question. I think the first part is, from my perspective, have a, a good partner or a reliable consultant or coach running alongside you. I would not want to be a single person operator in this business. There are too many decisions. There are too many what ifs that come up that you need a sounding board. If you're not lucky enough to have a partner like Tiffany that we are able to have a a strong relationship and a good sounding board, then I feel like I'm an advertisement for you. I apologize. We need you, right? You need somebody that is running alongside that says, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? For me personally, that was my job, right? I'm an attorney. You come into me with a business idea. I tell you everything that can go wrong with it. That's my job. You'll look at me and often say, it sounds like you don't want me to do this yeah. business. And again, I would say, I don't care. What I'm telling you is, <laughs> you know everything good. I don't have to tell you that you know you, you open 200 units and a private equity group buys you out for 50 million. You don't need me to tell you that. What you need me to tell you is when you open one unit, you go out of business, what happens? Yeah. I'm going to tell you where those risk points are. Yeah, and yeah. if you think you can minimize those risks and you can overcome those risks and you balance the opportunity, risk reward, then you go forward with it. Right? But I train myself to always show what happens when it doesn't go right. So my, my muscle has been trained because that's the, yeah. the background I come into it. But just asking that question. Don't, to your point, what if revenue drops 20% and costs go up 20%? What do you do? Yep. And if your answer is that's not going to happen, that's telling you something. Because <laughs> right? it's yeah. going it's just, to, it's just when and what do you do about it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I love this conversation so far. I want to I shift it a little bit because we've been talking now for a while, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes. And... Um, and we haven't really talked about some of this social change. I want to read this little piece that you guys, that you had sent along. It says, you're a purpose-driven hospitality group meant to bridge the gender and racial wealth gap in the industry. Talk to me about that. I think we can all uh, nod our heads uh, and agree with to the verity of the statement. But talk to me about why that's so important to the two of you. you know, Tiffany and I come from markedly different backgrounds. Tiffany's a... a- black woman from Beaumont, Texas. I'm a white man from Long Island. Uh, our experiences uh, naturally are, are different for those reasons and a myriad of others. 
we both share a commitment to equity and that's shown up in different ways. We could be on this for the next two hours if I shared more of the personal side of uh, my commitment to equity. Uh, it starts on a personal side. I married into uh, an East Indian family and that was the first time I was questioned about being a white guy. I wasn't necessarily welcomed into the Brown family at the time. And it was the first aspect for me really where color had an impact. I took the opportunity to think about that in the sense of how privileged I was that I didn't have to think about color until I wanted to marry somebody that was not the same color. And mm -hmm. you start thinking about what that means for others. You start paying attention at a different level. Uh, experiences in, in law where I saw inequities and would share with my clients, large corporate clients, what could be done. This is before diversity, equity, and inclusion was as recognized. Yeah. And they would tell me, just stay in your lane and practice law. And that was frustrating. Shifting to the entrepreneurial side, I would work with uh, a lot of women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses. And then you look at the statistics. And we celebrate, for instance, women of color being the fastest growing segment of small businesses because we celebrate up arrows. I'm not so sure when you look at qualitative data that the women of color that are opening businesses are doing it because they want to or they feeling a necessity because the opportunity in the corporate workplace isn't there. So for me, you know, attorneys think of issue, rule, apply, conclude. That's how they attack um, all, all different concepts. So for me, the issue was there's systemic inequities that, that play out in a myriad of ways. I have a skill set that I think can help bridge that gap. I want to apply my legal skills in a way that is uh, changing. I would love to be measured by the impact I leave more than the bank account I leave. I, you know, I don't mind making a, a sizable bank account if I can, but it's the impact that makes a difference. How can I apply my skills to do that? I've got that mindset. I meet Tiffany. Tiffany's first experience was at IHOP at 15, and she said, I want to be in the kitchen. They said, we don't allow women in the kitchen. Tiffany and I keep talking, and Tiffany says, you know, I wasn't able to find anybody that looked like me in the kitchen, and then I did, and he really helped me. And I said, Tiffany, he didn't look like you. Right? Is it the, the fact that you found another black person, right? but it, you didn't find a woman of color in the kitchen. We have to do something structurally to shift that. How can we apply streamlined business operations and have Tiffany's creativity come out in the kitchen and hopefully my creativity come out in the conference room and come up with models that give historically marginalized community members ownership in Roots Chicken Shack? So, so talk to me about then how that gets implemented then. How do you, for lack of a better term, like how do you put your money where your mouth is? How, how, does, that, how does that show up? Yeah, we, we run what we refer to as a social entrepreneurship where we are for good uh, and we want to do well. So we want to do good and do well, uh, run as a for-profit structure. What are, the, what are the issues that are facing somebody that wants to open a restaurant? So... And again, this, you know, this is years of different information and experiences that, that come together. But if you are, a, say, a, a woman of color that grew up in an historically red line district where lending didn't exist, and you now are an assistant manager at fill in the blank, QSR, or fast casual, what's your salary? 50, 60,000? 
if you are a single mom and you have a child or two, you probably have some credit card debt, I would imagine. And even though you pay it off every month, your credit score is still going to be impacted because of the algorithms on credit. So issue one, you have a talented woman who knows how to operate a restaurant, but doesn't have the resources financially to ever consider opening her own restaurant. Okay. Mm -hmm. I got to solve that problem. That's what you're asking. Like, how do I solve that problem? If you go back to the model we created at Farmer's Branch, where I told you the reason why we chose Farmer's Branch is we had the right landlord, we had the right municipality from a support perspective. Can we take that concept and apply it to this woman ownership? Can we say to that woman, we know that you don't have any monies to invest at the outset, but you have a talent to operate this restaurant. You have a skill set that is developed and honed over years. Can I work with a municipality that's looking to take a certain area and redevelop it? Can I find the right community bank? And without going into really details, that'll start boring everybody. There's the Community Reinvestment Act that banks have to adhere to investing in historically redlined districts. They can work with a third party, like a community development financial institution that can have the relaxed underwriting requirements and a little bit of the relaxed uh, or, or more market rates. Can we pull all of those resources together and say to that woman operator, you're going to come in and you're going to own and operate this restaurant and your ownership will vest over two years. So it's almost, you know, a, a, a sweat equity earn, earned earn out under the structure. Mm -hmm. I've, I've explained this before and I lose a lot of people. Right. But it, it you know, so no, but it's a, it's a path to citizenship, so to speak. It's a path to ownership. That's right. And I've had people say, well, you know, Tom, that'll work because you know, you're working on the deal. And I said, no, if we can create a model that works, then people will follow, right? If you say what you need is a municipality that's looking for a redevelopment zone and willing to issue a grant that we can assign to the designated owner operator. That serves as their equity from an underwriting perspective. Now, when I go to a bank and I say, I need you to underwrite that, they'll say, well, that person has no viable credit. What can I do? Well, there are guarantee funds and otherwise, but I can find a community development financial institution to partner with a bank that will do just that. And then we backstop it with the operational process. And we create the comfort because we say to the bank and the other investment structure, if this owner operator doesn't perform, we will step in and perform, right? So we're minimizing their risk. So you have, if we're considered, I don't consider ourselves a landlord in that scenario, but if you think about mimicking that farmer's branch, you've got a municipality, you've got a bank, you've got a landlord and you've got an operator, all who are aligned on the same mission now stop all of that. Now you put on your marketing hat and you say, Bank X, you have an obligation to invest in historically marginalized community members. I just created that opportunity for you. That's a marketing opportunity, isn't it? To talk about what you're doing, to help community yeah. members gain ownership. So why don't you throw some marketing dollars into this as well? Municipality, you're, we're going to partner with this bank. Would you mind putting that bank logo on this press release? then the bank is going to get some credibility because they're situated with a municipality. So you start creating multiple spokes of wins that can make a difference. So, okay. So there are people listening to this and they say, all oh, this sounds great. I don't know half what you're saying, but it all sounds great. It seems like it, this makes sense. How does somebody move forward in their, in their own town? How do they begin to have these conversations and 
how do they find the right stones to turn over, right? If they don't have a, a Tom at their disposal, how do they how do they do this? I don't have the answer to, to that or a concrete answer to that question. Uh, we're hoping uh, that the person that's asking that question can find groups where to we're still young groups like ours that have matured that have created this model. And then I can say to you, you can be a franchisee at Roots Chicken Shack and we can give you this opportunity. And, and it makes business sense because we have a, a strong operational model, small footprint, low food costs, streamlined menu, everything you talked about earlier. Yep. And we've created a financial structure that makes sense. That That's my full-time job is finding those opportunities, right? So we're in conversations with a few municipalities now. That's You need somebody on your team that's going to do that full-time and, and, and know what questions to ask. And that's not in... By no means am I special, but that's not an easy process, right? It's it just it's just what I grew up learning as a lawyer, so that's where I tend to, to focus. Yeah. So as you move forward with other locations of Roots, uh, Roots Chicken Shack, are you pursuing more of that model, more of like the franchise model with this sort of support? Yeah. And, and you know, to your point, we, we're in conversations with one municipality. It's over a year. And we should have a term sheet within the next two weeks. So it's creating that opportunity in this city where, uh, and I hope we're able to announce it you know, within the next three months, it will be the model that I think other municipalities will look to that see where the benefit is. Now we have to prove our concept, right? We have to open up, mm-hmm. that operator has to be successful. There has to be, if we're gonna say we're gonna try and achieve uh, an opportunity to close that gender and racial wealth gap. We have to show that there's a revenue profit that that operator is experiencing and enjoying. So yeah, there's there's proof of concept. Not that we're not worried about that, but kind of that's what what we've proven already at Roots Chicken Shack. And we think that model will move forward. And then we, because of that, we're introduced to another municipality uh, a little bit further uh, distance that. We're just starting those conversations. And, and you know, it, it, once one person sees it works, then the head of economic development at City X is going to say, why don't we do that? Yeah, yeah. And is this all still based in Texas, or are you guys looking to extend beyond? Right now, we're, we're you know, and, and, and you would probably advise us, uh, what, what we say is we want to be in driving distance uh, because we want to be able to, truly help that operator be successful. And in order to do that, there are times, and you know the restaurant space, you need to be there at 8 a.m. You know, yeah. we, we have a big catering order and the person that was going to come in and do all the prep called out, uh, that operator is going to call us and we're going to say we've got a team member that's going to be there and, and help yeah. you out. We, we know there's got to be backstop more than just here's an operations manual and, and good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's totally true. Uh, talk to me about then kind of the future of then the other brand, Roots Southern Kitchen. That's just a single standalone. Does that have sort of uh, larger ambitions or are there other sort of fine dining concepts that you guys um, are starting to think about? Yeah, that, so uh, Roots Southern Kitchen, we, we went out to market with that name in 2016, 2017 and uh, we ultimately branded it Roots Southern Table. Uh, and we did that really around the inclusivity, the idea that uh, our core values are welcome to our table and welcome is an acronym 
you'll see the E in empathy and the E for entrepreneurial. So I touched on two in our conversation. But the idea of welcome to our table, everybody's welcome at our table, everybody has a seat at our table. There's a lot of thought process behind the messaging mm-hmm. we're delivering. That that we opened in June. Uh, if I can brag for a second, I know you, you've got experience at Michelin star restaurants and, and James Beard award-winning restaurants. Uh, so we're too young for that. Uh, but your hometown paper, the New York Times, listed us as one of 50 restaurants across the U.S. to visit. Um, Esquire magazine had us uh, number 19 out of 40 in the U.S. as best new restaurants. Yep. Uh, so we're doing something right uh, from a, a kitchen delivery perspective and. Uh, we didn't talk about this. I was thrust into being the general manager of the front of the house. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're doing something all right with service. We now have a, a full-time general manager that relieves me uh, somewhat. But when we're done with this this conversation, I'm, I'm heading to the restaurant. So yeah. um, those duties never cease, as you know. But the, the, uh, the idea there is we think we can take that full-service restaurant and in an ideal world, you know, there's there's three or four across the U.S. that are in prime cities that correspond with chicken shacks. So, listen, our model may we we may only have three chicken shacks and what's one root southern table, but you got to dream big. And if we're dreaming yeah. big, you think we have root southern table as the fine dining concept that highlights the skill set that Tiffany brings. And the duck fat fried chicken we serve at Root Southern Table is also in the fast casual concept that we'd like you to be the franchisee for. So it's a culinary driven fast casual component. And then these Southern tables, if done effectively, help market the chicken shack components that run alongside of it. So there's a, a different model for marketing it. So it, again, in an ideal world, we have three to four of those and 50 chicken shacks. Um, yep. We don't get ahead of ourselves. You know, right now we've got one and two chicken shacks and we're going to keep keep our head down and keep pushing forward. Yeah, I'm always just curious to know what the what the ambitions are. Where, where do we see this going? Where can it go? So that's why I asked the question. All right. I got to ask, since you stepped in as the general manager, what did you learn <laughs> working in that capacity? And then the other piece is that what did you learn by watching somebody else take over for you and, and letting, letting that go? Letting that go. Um, that's, a, that's a key term. Um, <laughs> I challenge myself every day to, to let it go. I'm, I'm, I still haven't done that successfully. Okay. You know, it, it, was, it required a little bit of, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the expression, fake it till you make it. But the, the idea that I had to have confidence in my abilities uh, I embraced the opportunity saying, I know how to be a good guest at a restaurant. And I hear a lot in the restaurant space as to, well, that's how it's always done. And I take that as a challenge to do it mm-hmm. more effectively, not necessarily differently, right? It's not the sake of being different for difference sake. But how do we revisit that issue with with fresh eyes that haven't been in the hospitality business for 20 years that know more the business side and talk about how we how we do that? How do we build a staff? How do we create that motivation? We we focus and one of the compliments we get just had a friend that dined there last night that sent me a text today that said food is great. uh, Ambiance is great. But your staff, they want to be there. They're smiling. Well done. Right. And that's the energy. So how do you create that? It's a focus on culture. 
it's it's emphasizing the importance of mutual respect. It's also the end and, and welcome for both our staff as well as our guests. Driving that component uh, is key. I will say, so in a, a little bit lighter note, my litigation experience comes in handy with guests that aren't quite satisfied with, <laughs> with their meal. Um, I've learned that you can approach hospitality differently. And, and I say this, I'll, I'll give you an example of what we do a little bit differently. Guests in hospitality uh, have strong views and opinions, and rightfully so. They're coming in as your guests. They have certain expectations. Often in hospitality, you'll say the guest is always right, and we push back on that a little bit. You know, where, where guests come in and they'll say, you know what you should do? You should do this, or you should have mac and cheese on your menu. It's a southern restaurant. You don't have mac and cheese on your menu. And instead of saying, you're right, let me talk to the chef, maybe we'll think about it, you say, that's a great point. We thought about that. And we came up with the decision not to have mac and cheese on the menu because we want to break the box of what you think Southern is. We want to be outside of the stereotype. If you talk about our mission, we're trying to shift systems, right? We're talking about inequities. We're trying to change the viewpoint. We want to change your viewpoint that Southern doesn't always equal mac and cheese. Now, I'm not saying we will bring the mac and cheese on the menu in a few months for you, but it doesn't equal mac and cheese at this point, right? And what you find is the guest appreciates that. There's thought in everything we do. And if you relay that to the guests, you can have them agree with you without it being a, a disagreement. So it's, that's been interesting for me to, to have that guest interaction and create what I think for them is a, a different dining experience. It's, it's really hard. You, you, don't, um, you don't realize it until you're really faced with it, being in front of that many people. We, we, we're a people business, right? We, we buy from people. We employ people. We serve people. We, there's people all up and down, and then you got to be really good with people. All right, I want to ask you then, because you said sometimes uh, bringing fresh perspective as someone who hasn't been in the industry for 20 years um, is valuable, and, and I agree. In fact, a lot of the operators that I've interviewed on this show um, – I always say took the back door, took the side door. Um, and and I think perspective is valuable. So can you give me an example of something where people said, oh, that's just the way we do it. That's just the way it's always been done. And where you pushed back and simply by bringing a new, uh, you know, a new perspective to it, you were able to find a new way, a different way, a better way of doing something. Yeah, there's, there's a, a litany of what I'll call small aspects within the, the restaurant space, uh, interactions between front of house and back of house, how you come together as a team. Uh, I felt a lot of the restructuring, really, we're a full service bar and uh, full service uh, dining room at Root Southern Table. And when you're talking with the front of the house, the servers and the bartenders, they'll talk about how it's typically done. Even if you're you're talking about tip pooling or tip sharing. And what, what we'll do is, is provide full transparency. Right? I'm used to doing this. They're like, well, we're not necessarily going to handle it that way. You, you then structure it so that they have an understanding or an appreciation. The one that comes to mind is, uh, you know, particularly batching at the end of the night. You know, the, the bartenders and say, well, are we going gonna to get paid at the end of the night? Nope. You're going to get paid uh, three weeks from now on a salary. We'll have all your, your tips outlined there, and, and that's how we're running. Well, that's not how I did it at the other restaurant. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, you know, this is, this is how we're going to do it here. 
let me give you the reasoning for it. And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as saying, do you realize the back of the house gets paid, right? So all our employees are going to be paid consistently uh, on, on that date. Second, you know, we want to create opportunities for you. And we have a financial program and a financial literacy program underwriting this. We have relationships with banks. So as you know, in the hospitality space, a lot of the employees are underbanked. So we look to solve that problem. We suggest direct deposit, for instance. Let me tell you why we suggest direct deposit. As you know, in the hospitality industry, too many people are going to check cashing companies. How do we, how do we save against that? How do we talk about budgeting? If I'm giving you money each night, and, and by no means, I don't want to sound like a parent, right? But it, the, if we're giving you, you monies each night, then we don't have an opportunity to budget. How can we commit to you the same way you're committing to us? And yep. we're not setting this up to be difficult. We're setting this up for success. And those conversations, I don't think, are typical within the restaurant space. Uh, and not that it's doing it unbelievably differently, but it's, it's trying to provide, if we're talking about creating opportunities for future franchisees, we've got to start with creating opportunities for people on our team. So that's how yeah. we, we pour into it. So it's a, a different focus at that standpoint. And I think, I think the staff feels, I hope the staff feels that. Yeah. Uh, listen, I love it. I think financial literacy is one of the, um, the things in this country that we just don't talk about. And I think it's a, listen, as, as you look at the, the debt rates and all of that, I think it's, um, I think it's a real, real problem. So I applaud you for for taking steps to do that. I had a conversation with uh, with a client that I was working with. I was meeting with all their servers, and we were talking about this same thing because we do uh, a t- this client does a tip pool, and they also do wage guarantees, which is like phenomenal. Something they started during COVID, and they just never let go because they thought it was uh, it benefited them selfishly, uh, it allowed them to attract really great uh, staff and and retain them. Um, and then they also do, uh, you know, everything in their in their paycheck, and you know, people were all up in arms about it, and we we had to do this whole thing, and they said, you know, well, I, I turn in this in the tip pool, and I only get x, you know, half of that out. And I said, well, I'll show you the breakdown. I said, You're, it's going to work out the same either way, and we sort of break it all down. And they said, well, what's all this? I said, oh, I want to introduce you to the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> a third of your money, let's just eyeball it at a third of the money that you make every night does not belong to you. You're just hanging on to it for a little while. And if you get paid in a paycheck, you never see it. So you never feel ownership over that because all that all that hard work is, is being done for you because Medicare, Social Security, and the state, and, and your income, to, all of it's just taken care of. But when you see it every night, you feel ownership of it, but it's not yours. A third of the money you make every night does not belong to you. It belongs to someone else to pay for roads and airports and all kinds of important uh, public services. And we, and we had a really... Uh, we had a really uh, good conversation, I think, ultimately. But I love that you've really made this, uh, you know, that you've been intentional about this. And, and you know, to your point, we, we do it because we care. And at the same time, it benefits us, right? And that's the, and we're not shy when we talk about, you know, we want to do good and do well. We're, we don't want to be shy to say, hey, we want to do the right thing. We want to make money doing it. We want to do the right thing yeah. and keep the best staff possible. That's that benefits us. That's there's nothing wrong with mutual benefits, right? It's it's a win-win. So Agreed. when you invest in your employee, they will invest, we hope, in you as well. So and, and the experience of the text message I get last night saying the staff feels like they want to be here, people feed off energy. And and when it's a very simple process. If you go into a, a restaurant and the energy feels good, the food tastes better. 
it, it just it's just the way it is right if, funny right if, funny how that happens if the maitre d smiles and welcomes you you're gonna you're gonna have a better cocktail when you walk in it, it's so the, the and we tell our staff that that's the case and you realize the better the experience the guest has, the more likely they are to tip stronger. Like it, it, it it's a win-win for you to smile as well. Like we're, it, all of this works where, you know, the, the expression, all boats rise. This is benefiting everyone. The guest has a great experience. Maybe they tip you better. You're smiling. The culture is happy. We leave work and don't feel like it's work. That's, that's something we want to, we want to press forward and not having the experience. You may say, Hey, all the restaurants I've worked in are, are done like that. But I've been in restaurants where, kitchens are yelling and chefs are yelling and you know yep i'll be the first to tell you i make a lot of mistakes and what we talk about is uh another core value is continuous learning right the l and, and welcome you learn from your mistakes so we say to every one of the staff, you're going to make a mistake if you tell me that you made a mistake i got your back 100 percent of the time well whatever that is i i will always have your back if you don't tell us and you're not transparent and you're not honest then one, you're losing an opportunity to learn and you're losing our support. So, you know, I think creating that, that safer environment is also uh, healthy within the restaurant hospitality space. Yeah, I love it. It's so funny. We, we, a lot of places talk about culture. And I always say culture isn't where you sit around and talk about culture. <laughs> culture is where you, you, know, you create things, you put things into place, and you make it automatic, right? And say, this is the things we do. We do this sort of thing here, right? People like this work here. People who want this sort of thing, and you and you fortify that by giving people things to do, ways to ways to show that. And this is very much what you're doing. Put your money where your mouth is. Um, listen, Tom, I'm very aware of the time, and I want to uh, want to be respectful of your time. Uh, before I let you go, tell people where they can go to learn more about uh, everything you guys are doing. Yeah, thanks, and, and thanks for anyone still listening, rationally listening to me for this. This <laughs> I appreciate you sharing. I've learned a lot, you know, from you sharing with us today as well uh, our parent company is t2dconcepts.com that'll lead you to rootschickenshack.com rootssoutherntable.com and you know you can always follow chef tiffany dairy as well those are the ways to reach out to us and any of those click on any of those info at and ultimately it'll be filtered to me uh, and i try and respond to all of those uh, outreaches to the extent we can for sure Excellent. Uh, any last words of wisdom you wanted to share? Again, you got an audience, um, a receptive audience of chefs, operators, restaurant owners who are grinding it out, just trying to just trying to build a, a concept that that works. Um, any insight uh, to share with them based on what you've learned the last several years? There's no pressure on that question, is there? Um, I, I I'll go back to highlighting the the conversation we had today about challenging yourself to objectively analyze every decision yeah. uh, in, you know, step outside yourself, whatever gives you that image, whether it's thinking, I listened to that podcast and that Foley guy, I'm just going to try and do, I'm going to step outside. I'm going to be objective. When you're analyzing those business decisions, I would say challenge yourself to, to visit every question from what fill in the blank would say, what would, you know, my, mentors say what would my teacher say what would my parents say what would my consultant say what would my coach say when you're making those decisions uh and find those resources right reach out i'm, I'm sure there are ways they can reach you pretty easily uh, reach out to those experts that will keep you in check 
Yeah. Listen, I love it. This has been a great conversation. I'm so glad we did this. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and, and all the listeners. Tom, have a great day. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Again, a big thanks to Tom for taking time out of his day to sit and chat with us to share all of his insights and perspectives. Uh, as always, the links are all in the show notes, so go check them out. If you haven't done so already, please consider uh, leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, that's the one that really moves the needle. Uh, I, I would really appreciate it. Take two minutes out of your day. Go leave five stars and tell us, uh, tell the listeners or prospective listeners what you get out of the show, right? What, what, uh, uh, what the benefit is and why they should tune in to listen. That's the best way I know to grow uh, to grow the audience. So listen, appreciate you being here. I look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.